Welcome to Questions About Heaven, a podcast about giving Bible answers to our questions about the afterlife with God. Each week we seek to answer real-life questions with biblical answers about the life beyond this world. Now, here's your host, Brad Zockel. Good day, friends. This is Brad Zockel. Welcome to Questions About Heaven, and we're doing a special series and walking through the book of Revelation, literally verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and really verse by verse. And now we go into Revelation chapter 2, and some people are almost getting edgy, like, get to the future stuff, get to the future stuff. But there's a pause in these two chapters and saying, now, wait a minute now, we need to talk about what's going on right now. You see, in verse 20, John was told, you're going to write, or verse 19 and then 20, write about the mysteries. But in verse 19, it tells us in chapter 1, John, you need to write about what you saw. And of course, he saw the risen Jesus. He saw the glorified Jesus. And then you're going to write about what's going on right now. And then you'll write about the future. Well, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 are what's going on right now. Why write this stuff? Well, let's think about it. When I was in high school and then in college and I was on the wrestling team, I would uh, be in preparation for an upcoming opponent under the guidance of my coach, and he would tell me this, and he would tell all of us on the team about our opponent to come up. Now, he might be especially good on a takedown, or your opponent might be especially strong in the upper body, or he's very fancy and fast and about getting away and escaping. And he would talk about them and go through moves, and we would practice these moves against there. But the coach wasn't done. He said, that's him. Now there's you. And then the coach would look at me and then tell me my weaknesses or maybe even my strengths. Now, this is how we can defeat this guy. And here's what you need to do because you are weak in this area. The second half of the training was about me. And some of it was about my strengths, but also he would point out very clearly my weaknesses. My strengths in those days was I could put a leg lock on somebody, but my weakness was I could not really wrap somebody up into an upper body pinning mode. And and we had to work on that and constantly say, you've got to work on these pins and work on this again and again. And Brad, you need to be aware of this. Well, when we look in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see this. The problems facing the churches are addressed. Here's what you're doing. You're facing the enemy, and that's him. But now let's talk about you. So if you look at chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see this. This can be historical in saying, was there actually a church of Sardis? Was there a church of Pergamos? Was there a church of Ephesus? Yes, there were historical churches. Okay, what do they have to do with us then? Why would we have to bother with them? Because they reflect us. This is not only historical, it is also contemporary because we know that we fall under these same things. So this writing is also for our edification and our warning. That's what it says in the opening verses of chapter one. Listen, You need to read all that is in here and heed and keep these words. It's good work, okay? Now, as we're going in here, let's start in Revelation chapter 2. And the first church that we see is this church called Sardis, all right? Let me read it 
and then we'll talk a bit about it and what we need to know about this. this is a very, very powerful passage here, okay? Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. And we said the angel could be messenger. We don't know whether it is an angel from heaven or the term angelos can mean messenger. Can it just mean a messenger that is helping out? We're not sure. He says this, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil, and you have tried them which say they're apostles and are not. You found them out to be liars. And you have borne and you have patience, and for my name's sake you've labored and you've not fainted. Nevertheless, I have something against you because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly. I will remove your candlestick out of its place, except you repent. But this you have, you do hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, verse 7 sounds wonderful. If you overcome, you partake in the garden of God, the tree of life. Well, let's go through this too, because it sounds like Sardis is doing good, but there's a big gap here, and this might apply to us. Now, think about this, okay? We are talking, uh, Jesus is introduced here, uh, and here, this will happen in all of the, the uh, letters. You'll have an introduction of Jesus in a different way, and Jesus is looking over, and he will talk about what they are doing, both good and bad. He will talk about them. He'll lay open in, uh, in, in a total transparency what they're doing. He knows the hearts of the congregation. He will reach uh, some sort of a decision about them wherever he wants to go, a commendation or a condemnation, and then he gives instruction about that and says, listen, this is what I want you to do right, and then there is a promise, and this finishes up in each one a promise of a reward. Now, this will stay consistent, this pattern, in all of these uh, with uh, Ephesus being the first one here, all right? Now, when we're going down through here, we're looking at the church that's found in Ephesus. And there's something interesting here on this postal route that goes kind of like a fish hook, and we're going church by church as if this is a postal delivery. Ephesus is the first one. And this one was a very, very well-known city in the ancient world. We do know that Paul had been here at one time. When we look at Acts uh, chapter 19, chapter 20, we will see that Paul was there in this city for three years. And when he was there, he was in connection uh, with Timothy uh, in there as well. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3 lets us know that Paul was working with Timothy in Ephesus as in there too. We also know that Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos at one time had been in this very, very famous city as well. This was a place that, well, could I say it would be like New York? Uh, that might be so. It was known, world famous, world famous. People come from all over to Ephesus there. And in there, you would see that they were very, very high culture. They were very well-to-do, and they were very religious. They had a huge, intimidating temple 
that was the temple to Diana. And that was the fertility goddess. All right. Uh, debauchery through this Diana was the goddess of sex. And this was such a huge edifice built to her. It was a temple. And in some of the writings, we find out that it was surrounded by pillars, over 100, well, 127 pillars that had gone uh, around this building, 127. And they had sculptures in here, gemstones encrusting these pillars as well. Uh, this building itself in Ephesus was over six stories tall in there. As a matter of fact, it was so powerful that they claimed that the gods would guard your money. So this is one of the first times we read about a bank in Ephesus. So we see a huge financial center when we talk about Ephesus here. So what's the description about Jesus? Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven gold candlesticks. It says these things that he said, that this is Jesus. Now, we saw that in a previous chapter. It's talking about this. Jesus holds the seven messengers, and he is in the midst of the seven gold candlesticks. Lampstands is another term for them in a translation. And it's just saying this. Jesus is aware, and he's uh, in authority, and he is walking in the midst and is totally involved with the church. He wants you to know that he is in the leadership. This is not a social gathering. This is not a celebrity-driven type of an assembly. It's Jesus. He is the main foundation of this church. He is the building, the structure, the lighting, the glory of the church too. And so in here, this is the power of the one who's giving this letter. And he says this, here's what I know about you. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you can't bear those who are evil. You've even tested those who are apostles and are not. You've found them to be liars. Now, he sees them on here, and he's saying the first thing, I know your works. I know what you're up to here. Okay. Now, when he says this, he's not condemning them right away. You've worked hard. All right. You have been in the marathon of persecution and also inspection of others. You've worked to keep your church pure. All right. You have been very patient in this. Now, you can't bear those ones that are evil on here. Now, when you read about this, they were very aware that they've got to guard against any kind of antichrist behavior, any kind of Gnostic intervention and things like this. They were very, very powerful. It says you've persevered and you have patience. You've labored for my name's sake, for the name of the Lord. You have worked hard. Look, I'm not telling you you haven't worked hard. And you've done this and not become weary or whiny. All right? They were persevering. That's a good example for us to remember there. This looked like a great church. But, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. One translation says, lost their first love. And that is not correct. It is they've left their first love. They are serving, but they're going through the motions. Do you think your church, or do you think that there are those in the Christian community that would be like an Ephesian church? They just do things for doing them. I remember one time going to 
a New Year's Eve service at a church, and it was an, a watch night service. They used to do this. This was fairly common among some churches. They would have a New Year's Eve service, and this little country church said, well, this keeps the people off the streets, keeps them away from temptation. But when we went in, it was just a, an affair that was so boring. And they actually were in the church for hours and hours. I think they started at nine at night and went till three or four in the next morning. People were exhausted. They were just asking for people to do stuff like sing. And they, even when they fed the food after midnight, people were just so tired. And I went to one of the members that I knew very closely. And I said in secret, I said, it doesn't seem like anybody's enjoying this. Why do you do this? And he said what we always had thought we would hear. He says, because it's always been done. Yeah, I agree with you. Nobody really likes doing this, but it's something that's always been done. There was no joy. The prayers were very tired. It was just an exercise in uh, just rote action. And that's kind of what Ephesus is like here. You, you just don't care about things here uh, when, when you're doing this. You, you left your first love. It seemed that the first part, everything was wonderful and things have just gone stale and, and, and sour, all right? You are just doing things for the sake of doing them. I have this against you. You've left them, all right, uh, on here. So when we think this, this could mean they don't care about God, or maybe it means they don't care about each other. We don't know, or maybe they don't even care about themselves. It's just that they've gone through this so long. Yeah, they are very pure doctrinally. No one can question them on that. And they're very strong, and they don't get tired. But this is the most important thing that we can see here. You see, Isaiah, when he sees the seraphim flying around the throne of God, they have six wings. Six wings, you can get a lot of fast flying in there. But they take four of those wings, two they cover their face, and two they cover their feet, in respect of God and his holiness. And it says, with only two wings they fly. So just about 66% of their energy is expended in honoring God and his respect and in their love for him. The other two are in the activity. Wouldn't it be if we took Ephesus, they would use all six wings and just be zipping around so fast they would not recognize the God in the throne. That's what this is saying here. Okay, so what you have to do is remember you're doing wrong. Remember this. This is not right, it says. You have to remember where you've fallen, okay? You remember at the point, where did you fall away, all right? And you need to remember this, and you need to repent of this. This is not, you should feel sorry for yourself. This is not, you should get emotional or start a support group. It's stop doing what you're doing wrong and turn around. I tell my students, Repentance, if you want to make it mathematical, is a 180-degree turn. Repentance is a 180-degree turn. Do the opposite of what you've been doing, and you'll understand repentance. Do the first works. Go back to the front. Go back to the, the, the first uh, moments when you became saved and everything was fresh and exciting. That's the first works. Do that as well. I don't want to take your lampstand away from you, which means they'll lose their testimony. They'll lose their glory from God. They will, well, it's like 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 21. It says, the glory has departed. That, that's Ichabod. Funny name, but it's a very serious thing. The glory. Do you want that? No, we don't want that to happen. I do know you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I also hate them, the Lord says. Now, we, we really don't know specifically 
because there's a couple of, of thinking of, of thinking about this. Revelation 2.15 refers to them as well, but we're just not sure. It can be some things here that they could be like the Gnostics who had uh, secret cultic uh, teachings and were kind of trying to change around the thinking about Jesus and maybe he was not a full human or maybe you had to know secret knowledge. He taught extra things. It can also see Nicolaitans, Nikao is victory, and Laos is people. And so you're saying victory over the people. And on that, it can be, it, it maybe means that they had some sort of a pharisaical leadership where you didn't question the leadership of the church. It could be that they were doing a thing. Whatever it was, it was a devastating thing because Jesus says, I also hate them as in this too. Whatever it was, we know that Jesus cannot absolutely cannot stand them, and so he says this. You do have that. You're aware of that. Okay, let me give you a general call, he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. All right? So anybody can listen to this. We right now, in this year, as well as they then, can do this. This was written for everybody. What the Spirit says the Holy Spirit saying to the churches, not just to one church, to all churches, everybody. Remember when you got in trouble in elementary school and then the teacher would step back and say to everybody, you all need to know this rule. Okay, this is the same thing here. This book is passing out what he says here. And it's sent over there. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right? So how do you do this? Well, our victory is in Jesus Christ. I thank uh, the Lord, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We also see thanks be to God who gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians says that. That's an overcomer. And the promise on that is eternal life. Eat from the tree of life. All right? You think of the Garden of Eden. This was the tree of life here. In the midst of the paradise, the garden garden of God. It means God is with us, really, in, in, in a dwelling. Revelation 21.3, God will come down to earth to live with us. That's the promise. And so when we look here, we see the importance of understanding that this is a God that wants us to understand. I want to know you. Remember Matthew 7, they kept saying, Lord, Lord, haven't we done wonderful things in your name? And he says, but I don't know you. I don't know you. And so may we remember here, first of all, as we're heading into the eternal judgments that go against the non-believers, that we've got work to do. And people will know if you don't care. What's that famous phrase? I'm trying to remember it now. It's, uh, I, I don't know, it's attributed to so many people. And, and it, it goes like this. They will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think in this sense, we can take it further. They don't care how much you know about the Lord until they'll know how much you care about the Lord, all right? And so may we remember that and be uh, encouraged by this. Take this and think about this as we move on through Revelation. Thanks for joining us this week on Questions About Heaven with Brad Zockel of the Zulon International Bible Institute. Be sure to visit our website, zulon.org, to learn more about our Bible ministry. That's X-U-L-O-N dot org. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. 
and keep an eye out for our upcoming ebook, Questions About Heaven. Thanks, God bless you, and have a great day.